continuing with series on the book of Romans. Our subtitle today, You Are More Than a Conqueror. To him who loves you, you are more than a conqueror. You know, it's, it's an awesome word. We'll get there in just a minute. Let me begin with something humorous on this beautiful family Sunday. Old pastor died and arrived at the gates of heaven. Next to him was a young Uber driver who died seconds ago from his reckless driving. The pastor was called first, and St. Peter said, For your lifelong career working for the church, we will give you a small studio where you can stay for the rest of eternity. Then St. Peter turned to the Uber driver and said, For your two years of, as being an Uber driver, we will give you a giant mansion by a lake and a Ferrari with a heated garage. The pastor thought it was strange and unfair and protested, Why does the Uber driver deserve so much more than me? When I devoted my whole life to the church and to God, St. Peter explained, you see, during your sermons, half the audience was sleeping and the other half was looking at their phones. But when the Uber driver was driving, everyone was praying. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 29, five great troops, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn of many brethren. And whom he did predestinate, he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his, own, his only son, but offered him up for, for us all, how shall he not with his son also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is Christ who justifies, and then we'll talk about some things in a moment. I just want to remind you, God's for you. Five great truths. Number one, God is all-knowing, and a property of omniscience is having foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is perfect and complete understanding of the future. So nothing that happens in 2023. There's not going to be an emergency meeting in the Trinity saying, did you see that coming? No, I didn't see that one. Did you see that Who knew? So the Bible says God's already at the end of time. He calls the end of a thing from the beginning. So, so God's, it's, it's a hard concept for us to understand that God's not in the limited government and constraint of time. He lives beyond it. Time was created as an instrument, especially because God wanted to put an end to sin, a limited time for the fall of man, etc. But God's foreknowledge is complete knowledge. Jeremiah said, this, God said to Jeremiah, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I knew you. Same book, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Foreknowledge, Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, other books. It is a kingdom, a truth, a biblical truth about God. God knows everything, including the future. The second thing he said this, for whom he foreknew, so God from eternity past, knew you, saw you, knew about your life, knew all your features physically, emotionally, spiritually, etc. The second thing is, for whom you foreknew, he predestined. Now, just like the word, it, that's what it means to give a destiny ahead of time. So, before you were born, a destiny was waiting for you. That's what it means, predestined. It's kind of a simple way of looking at it. But God has a purpose for everything in creation. Everything has a purpose and every... Purpose as a person. God has a reason for your life, a purpose, etc. And he, the rest of the sentence is going, for whom he predestined to be conformed 
to the image of the Son. Every single believer shares the common highest calling to be conformed to the image of the Son, which means to become like Jesus. So your life's greatest calling, Michael Maiden's greatest calling, your greatest calling is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. To be like Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Yes, we want to do things. Worship and witness and all, all the activities and all the expression of the kingdom. But the greatest calling you have is Christ-like. That's it. We share it together. Pastor, what's my purpose? Being like Jesus. What about my job? Yeah, get a great job, then be like Jesus. Well, Pastor, what is my purpose to get married? Yeah, yeah, get married, then be like Jesus. Come on, that's our common High calling. Paul said, I reach for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What is that? Every moment of his journey, he wanted to be more like Jesus. He wants to be more. Lord, we want more of you. God says, okay, you're going to have it. I'm going to make you more like me. I'm going to make you more like me. So that's our earthly journey. Amen. Never feel your, your purpose is not a job. Your job, no matter what it is, is your platform for your purpose. What's your purpose? To be like Jesus. To expand God's kingdom. That's your purpose. No matter how and where and when in your journey. So we're all called to this common purpose. Just a couple points about it because it's important. There's, never, there's no such thing as a wasted season in a purposeful life. So, so you might, well, I just, I, you know, I, as soon as I get married, I'll fulfill my purpose. No. God has a great purpose in your single season. <laughs> Listen, I am so blessed with a wonderful, beautiful wife. A couple weeks, 43 years, 44 years of marriage. Thanks for the reminder. And I'm, I'm endlessly grateful for Mary, but God doesn't give marriage to us just to make us happy. Marriage is assigned to us to make us holy. Because it's hard to live with someone who ain't you. Anybody can be great two nights a week on date nights. Oh, they're just perfect. Yeah, wait till you live with them. <laughs> then you get to walk out your faith. So I get a chance to be conformed to the image of Christ in my marriage and be Christ-like in my behaviors as I'm called to love my wife as Christ loved the church. What an outrageous commandment, but yet we strive for it and spend. So we're all called to be like Christ, amen? Now just a couple points in the Old Testament. God, there, there were, there, uh, uh, it wasn't just the Bible. In antiquity, farmers would reap their harvest and at the end of their reaping, they would then take it, their harvest and bundled you know, bundled purposeful grains of barley or wheat, and they would take it to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor would be an elevated place of high, a flat ground, an elevated place where the eastern wind could blow in uh, across that place. And so they would take, usually they would take a pole, put it in the middle of that, that area, and they would take a ox and tie it to a rope, and they would lead the ox in circles around that flat, plain, and then they would lay down the harvest, the barley crop, the wheat. And the ox's job was to crush the, the plant until the useless 
chaff could be removed from the precious grain. So at the end of it, they would take a winnowing fan and they would scoop up now the mixture of crushed, you know, uh, crushed stalk and of grain and they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow all the useless light chaff away. And the, 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 the heavy, the useful, the valuable grains of barley and wheat would come back down. Now, here's my point. What do you, in our journey with Christ, often we go, we may be in ox seasons. <laughs> what are you saying, Pastor? Well, we're in a season where we feel like we're being crushed. And sometimes it's by a big ox. Come on. A relative, a boss, an employee, a neighbor, some other person, hopefully it's not your spouse, whatever it is. And they're just kind of tramping, trampling through your life. And, and you know, oh God, please give me better friends. Give me a better job. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I want to give you a better Christ like this. So instead of praying to get to a better place, pray for God to make you a better Christian. 10%. Everybody else, no, no, I want a better place. No, no, forget that stuff. So our, we don't want to miss because God will take some of the toughest seasons and do the most thorough work. Lord, make me like you. I want to be like you, Jesus. Here comes the ox. What's that? That's your chance to be more like Jesus. You know, we, get, we become more like Jesus when we're around people that ain't like Jesus. Ew, yeah. Yeah, they give us a chance to love, to forgive, to be patient, to be kind, to be Christ-like. Yeah, okay. We're all called to be predestined in the church for a long time, especially 500 years, but longer than that. There's been a tension between predestination, the sovereignty of God, and um, man's free will. So we have these two camps, Calvinism and Arminianism. So Calvinism really focuses on predestination. And, and their idea is this. Everyone who's going to get saved is going to get saved. And so what, what the, the problem is when you overemphasize predestination, you pull people back from evangelism. They don't feel the burden or the debt to share the gospel. Well, if they're supposed to get saved, they'll get saved. Okay. I was talking with the largest Reformed church in town. Great pastor, great church. Very large church, wealthy church, etc. So 10 years ago, we're just uh, having a great uh, pastor's meeting. And I said, I said, man, last year at Easter, we had like 230 salvations. And he said, well, we, we don't give in our services any public chance for people to receive Christ. The biggest reformed church in town. And I'm like, well, I know you believe that predestined people get saved, but don't they need an opportunity to enter into their predestination salvation? Don't, don't, don't they, you know, get... So that, he took my words... That Easter, I think a few weeks later, 
And next time I met him, he said, hey, I gave my first altar call ever during Easter, had 350 salvations. <laughs> Largest church in town. Now here's my point. Any doctrine taken to extreme becomes uh, erroneous in its expression. So predestination has this tension. So the other idea, Armenian, that we have free will, that God honors people's free will. And predestination says no one can lose salvation. Free will says, well, people could turn away from God. So, so Pastor, where do you stand? I, I'm kind of in the middle. I 100% believe in predestination. I also believe in free will. I believe every person deserves to hear the gospel. And we'll leave it up to God who's predestined to be saved. Now, I 100% do not believe God's predestined people to go to hell. So that's where their doctrines end up in extremism. And so it gives kind of a harshness, a cruelty, and an indifference toward evangelism. We never want to get over there, okay? So you're predestined. You have a destiny that you were... God creates the world, creates the universe. He creates a garden. And then he creates man. God created a purpose for Adam before he created Adam. There's a purpose on this earth waiting for you. A predestined purpose from God. And it'll be like Christ, but also to live out the assignment of your individual expression of that calling. So whom he predestined, he called. Kaleo. To speak someone's name, to give them destination and vocation. To tell them who they are, where they're going, what they should do. So every person here that you're born again, you're called. So calling is when... The phone rings, the Holy Spirit convicts you, and we pick it up and we answer and say, yes, I'm ready to be saved. So, so calling, we are called. The Bible says we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we are the chosen, the called ones. Jesus Christ spoke your name. From eternity past, God said, I want you, I need you, you're mine, you're called. Never let the devil diminish the idea of your importance to God. God, before the world was made, saw you, predestined you, and then spoke out your name and said, you'll be mine. The next idea is whom he called, he justified. So justification is the placing, the transference, the giving of righteousness. So God took us as sinners, forgave our sins, and then placed righteousness in us. It is an incredible thing. So I'm not just forgiven, I'm righteous. He made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's nothing but great news. Amen. We're justified. So all through the book of Romans and all through the New Testament, the doctrine of justification is talked about. I'll read you just a couple verses about it because it is so essential to your foundation of faith. Chapter 3, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, chapter 3, Romans. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So justification is a gift I receive, not a award I achieve. Romans 5 says this. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So all through the Bible, the idea of justification is centered to uh, the believer's faith. So, so Jesus did it for us. Amen? Jesus did it for us. So, so, so God foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. Amen? Because I couldn't fulfill my predestined calling without being forgiven and made righteous. 
And lastly, whom he justified, he glorified. That's speaking of, I believe, your eternal, your eternity with God. So the Bible talks about that we will be given a glory body, a glorious new identity, a glorious new eternal body. So, so imagine having a life form that never ages, can't get sick. Imagine having a mind that has capacity. We, the, the smartest person on earth, I don't know, uses 6, 7% of the brain. Imagine a full function. Imagine not, no disease. Imagine no temptation. So a glorified body is one of the great promises for every believer. A amen. So in heaven, you're going to, you're gonna, you know, I, I don't know what age we're going to look like, but you're, you're going to look great. You're going to look great. Do the best you can here, but up there is an upgrade. Then he says to all those things, what shall we say to these things? You have to have the ammunition in your belief system to let the devil have it when he tries to belittle you, shame you, condemn you, diminish you. When he tries to push you back from intimacy with God or about bold confidence in God's promises. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I just want to remind you, God's on your side. God's your friend, not your enemy. God's fighting for you, not against you. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, the Father giving his son. How shall he not with his son also freely give us all things? So, I like to say it like this. If God's given us the big thing in Jesus Christ... He won't hold back on smaller things. Oh, never misinterpret life because of an adverse moment in your life. Oh, God's not with me. I, Jesus, big gelada. Okay, next line. If God's given us the big gelada, Jesus, he won't hold back in the chips and salsa. And the idea Paul said, if that's true... How much more are the, God cares about your electric bill. He's going to help you. But Jesus is the big thing. And we never want to lose all the emphasis that our hearts should have. That God's for us, God loves us, God's on our side. He's fighting on our side, not against us. And then he goes on to talk about the charges of condemnation. Five, these five questions he says, who is he, uh, who will bring the charge against God's elect? Verse 33, it's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Is Christ that died for the most risen, who's at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. So what a picture. What's Jesus doing now? He's declaring your righteousness to the Father. He's telling the devil back off, made in his mind, making intercession for us. So that's, the, these questions were all rhetorical in nature. They, they're unanswerable because they're, they're obvious, pointing us to Jesus. Because of Jesus, God's on your side. God's for you. Come on, God's for you. I'm sorry that thing hasn't happened for you yet, but it's going to happen. I'm sorry that thing you're waiting for hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. But don't misinterpret your life story because of a chapter of discouragement or disappointment. Don't let the devil win. Okay? Next verse, one of my favorite verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's pressure, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Paul went through all of those things. Kind of the intense, unbelievably moments of life. And he said this, 
as it is written, for your sake were killed all the day long, were counted as sheep for the slaughter. So Paul said it's easy for people to embrace victimization and victimhood and to, and to be filled with self-pity. What's that? It's the world's smallest violin. What's a plane? What's the song, honey? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. They go eat some chocolate. Worms. It's easy to have an unending pity party because you're going through a tough time. You need to let Jesus burst into your party. Surprise, I'm here. Put on some new music. Put on, you know, put up some balloons. Celebrate the goodness of God. So, the devil's a liar. And, and so he goes on to say this. Charges. Who will, who will charge? Who will condemn? The constant threat of this culture is you will agree with us or we will shame you into submission. Shame is a demonic tool used to manipulate people through intimidation and fear. God doesn't use shame. The devil does. And the church must be able. There's no condemnation to those in Christ. You've got to be able to tell shame to leave your soul. To fight for a shame-free God righteousness. The justification doesn't just give you righteousness. It restores innocence. Just as if I've never sinned. Okay, God, God loves me. And he repairs what sin has done. So the rhetorical phrase, verse 37. Here's our sermon. I'm sorry. Took full. Yet in all these things, all those difficult things, we are more than conquerors. <laughs> Who pay in the kale? Who pay above and beyond the kale conquer? It means to be a super conqueror. I I, I, here's a simple example. I'm, I'm going to be speaking at a conference this Thursday and Friday in Houston. I'll fly back for next, this next Sunday. It's going to be great. So they'll give me an honorarium. I'll walk in the door, kiss my wife. I'll hand her what I earned by my work. I'll hand her what I conquered. And when I give it to her, she's more than a conqueror. She's like, thank you. Thank you, honey. I know just where that's going. And, she, and so Jesus said, I'm going to win the fight. You get to celebrate the victory. You live in the result of my victory. When we live lesser lives, we diminish the victory of the cross. And we misrepresent what God has given us in our new identity as the chosen called children of God. So, yeah, and all these things were more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. Love conquers all. I think it was this Tuesday. I can't remember. Yeah, I spoke at the, the Bible college. It was we had so much fun. And um, I, I said some things about how love works and about, 
you know, the mission, the expression of God in the kingdom. And I'll just summarize it by saying this. Whenever we leave love, we misrepresent God to people. No matter how, no matter how much biblical accuracy there is, if there wasn't love expressed, if it wasn't enmeshed in love, then it didn't, it didn't have its intended purpose. It's so essential. Every person, Mary and I had four kids, and our, our impulse for children was this. We loved each other so much. Let's create little people that we can love. Our goal was, we have too much love not to share it. Let's create little maidens and love them. God in heaven has angels, he has the Trinity himself. But God's heart so massive, God says, I need more than this. I need children. Thank you, angels. Angels worship or else they get thrown to hell. It's not exactly a free thing. You know, it's not a, it's a choice. So they do what they're commanded. They're specifically orientated to serve God. God said, I, I want children that choose me. I want to be chosen. I want them to love me by choice. I want them to know me by desire. I want them in my image. There's just something to look into a, a child and everybody says, oh, he looks like you. Thank God my children look like my wife. <laughs> oh, I see you in them. God sees him in you. Thank you, brother. One brave soul. Really? Pastor, you don't know my family. I see the devil in them all the time. I don't know about Jesus. I don't. God, God sees his image in us. And he loves us because we're his. There's nothing my kids, my grandkids could ever do to make me unlove them, stop loving them, withhold my love. I don't have to approve of behavior to keep loving them. That's the lie of this culture that says, if you don't approve of our behavior, you're not loving us. No, it's possible to love someone and disagree with them. Amen. How do we know? Because God's got to put up with us. He does not condone all of our activity. He never stops loving us. Then he says this in closing. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, apparently other kinds of spiritual realities, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I will live in as much eternal victory as I experience heavenly love. The unloved heart is always searching for meaning, significance, and value. The loved heart gives people meaning, significance, and value because it carries it. 
My children were born because we wanted someone to love. God created you because he wanted, you were made to be loved by a loving God and your life comes into the full spectrum of meaning when you finally find out I was made to be loved. That's why worship is so consequential, so satisfying because I was made to give back the love he's poured into me. And when I do, I, I complete the circle. I complete the meaning of my life. I'm loving him because he first loved me. Nothing could separate from God's love. This next revival in the 1700s, 1730, the Great Awakening, first Great Awakening broke out. The basic theology and premise of the Great Awakening, first one was the fear of God. Most famous sermon, sinners in the hand of an angry God. This Great Awakening, the greatest premise and the greatest foundation will be the revelation and the encounter of the love of God. And I like to say it like this, sinners in the hand of a loving God. Yes, we still hold fast to the essential doctrines of the fear of God, sanctification, holiness, obedience, etc. But when you interpret those things and express them through love, it's different. So God says, let love be the primary thing. Show them you, my love by loving each other and then love them the way I love them. Love them the way I love them. God started a love revolution in Phoenix. Because, listen, everyone yearns to be loved. And people misinterpret that by going in relational things. But, but the greatest way that, that meaning, that hunger is satisfied is by knowing the love of God. God help us to know that love. See, I had to go back to kindergarten 25 years ago. I, we, we toured a school this, this week, and, and I, I was laughing in the kindergarten seats. They're so small. I had to go back to kindergarten, and big old man, and Jesus had to come into the class. He said, today's lesson is I love you. I love you, big church, little church, no church. We were going through a, a tremendous upheaval. And I based my identity on my achievements. And when my achievements crumbled, I didn't know who I was because I thought God couldn't possibly love me now. But God reasserted and changed my belief systems by showing me he loved me not because of what I did, but because of who I was to him. And it changed my world. You are loved and you are more than a conqueror. And you're going to conquer everything the devil throws at you. Everything life's thrown at you this year. You're going to conquer it because love inside of you is creating a foundation, an anchor against the storms of life. Thank you for listening to me today. Will you stand at your feet, church? Prayer team, please join me at the front. Worthy is your name, Jesus. Help me choir. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Come on, sing. Worthy is your name. Jesus. You deserve the praise. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Come on, let's your hands up to praise. Worthy is your name.
as a declaration. Father God, thank you for loving me so much. You sent Jesus. Today I receive, I believe in that great love. Help me to know your love in a greater measure. Help me to express your love in a greater way. Thank you for always loving. In Jesus' name, amen. God's going to help us. As we close this service, just before we head over for our family time, anyone you need prayer today, we're here to pray for you and stand with you. If you're going through a tough time, don't raise out. Let someone pray for you before your day changes, your, before you leave campus. And if you've never received the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, we'd be so honored to pray for you today. If you've been away from God, make today your homecoming Sunday. And let someone help you find your way back to God, the God that loves you, the God that's been waiting for you, the God who's not angry at you. If you're going to do the physical healing in your body or your mind, we'd be deeply honored to pray for you. Maybe this has just been a really tough week. Let someone declare his grace over you and pray and stand with you. Anyone want prayer? Come forward. some fellowship, some food, etc. If you can't have a great rest of your day, tell someone on your way out, Jesus loves you like crazy. God bless you.